Well, if you have a Bible, you can open it up to the book of Revelation. Tonight we are in chapter 20, as I mentioned, and we are discussing final judgment. And I'm pulling it up right now as we speak. The Apostles' Creed, which we have just sang a creed here in our worship time, it says this about Jesus, he ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. The Nicene Creed is similar. It says he ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. The 1689 London Baptist Confession, which is a cornerstone confession of faith for Baptists, says the following, God has appointed a day wherein he will judge the world in righteousness by Jesus Christ, to whom all power and judgment is given of the Father, and which day not only the apostate angels, those are demons, shall be judged, but likewise all persons that have lived upon the earth shall appear before the tribunal of Christ to give an account of their thoughts, words, and deeds, and to receive according to what they have done in the body, whether good or evil. And then finally, the Baptist Faith and Message 2000 says, God in his own time and in his own way will bring the world to its appropriate end. According to his promise, Jesus Christ will return personally and visibly in glory to the earth. The dead will be raised, and Christ will judge all men in righteousness. The unrighteous will be consigned to hell, the place of everlasting punishment. The righteous and their resurrected and glorified bodies will receive their reward and will dwell in heaven with the Lord. What you can see is that for 2,000 years, creedal and confessional Christianity believes in final judgment. That Jesus Christ will return and that when he does, every soul will give an account for their lives. And then everyone will carry on forever in eternal life or in eternal death. And this will not just be spiritual, but it will be physical. To deny final judgment is to deny basic Christian doctrine and to deny the word of God. To come to believe in the reality of final judgment leaves you pleading for Christian hope in the gospel of Jesus. So this is our subject matter tonight in Revelation 20, 11 through 15. The last time we were together, we looked at 21 through 10, and we were considering the events there. Continuing to study Revelation from this idealist, amillennial perspective, we've seen that the book comes to us in seven cycles, and that in each one of these cycles, we're getting a picture of how things are during the age of the church's witness, and how things are going to be at the end. And Revelation 20 marks the beginning of the seventh and final cycle of Revelation. And in it, what we saw is that Jesus died on the cross, and he resurrected, and he ascended to heaven, and he bound the enemy. He bound Satan, the strong man. And while Satan is still called lowercase g, God of this world, he will not be able to keep the nations in darkness. The nations are no longer in abject darkness, and and the light of God's truth is no longer only known by one people, but it is spread to all of the Gentile nations, and Satan can't stop that. And this will go on throughout the age of the church's witness for a thousand years, which is a multiple of ten, just means from a human perspective, a really long time. 
And during this time, believers are passing away and their souls go to reign with Christ in the intermediate heaven until he returns. It's where people who are believers are now. Before Jesus returns, Satan will be led out for a little while to run amok. That's when the final Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, will wreak his havoc in the world. And then the Lord Jesus will return. And when he does, he will throw every enemy that we met in chapter 12 into the lake of fire. The beast, the false prophet, Babylon, the evil world, those who dwell on the earth and take the mark of the beast. And then we saw Satan, praise God, destroyed in Revelation 20.10, when John said the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever. With the punishment of the beast and the false prophet and the devil begun in verses 7 through 10, it's now time for us to see how God deals with the souls of humans. And 20, 11 through 15 is going to give us a very close look at the final great white throne judgment of God. And so let me read for us Revelation 20, starting in verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Let's pray. God, this is such an important passage. It's been one of the greatest honors of my life to preach your word to this church. I pray that would continue, Father. But tonight, it's a heavy passage. It's one of the harder passages to deal with. Not because, again, it's real hard to understand. It's not like Romans 9. It's not like Ephesians 1. It's not one of those passages where we struggle to understand it because the doctrine is, is so dense. It's one of those passages that is hard because we love lost people in our lives. And it's one of those passages that is hard because we know that we have not loved you every minute the way we should. And here we see the judgment throne where everyone will have to answer. So let us feel the weight of it tonight, God. As much of it as we need to feel, let us feel it. Let us see it. Let us... us Know that this is not a religious tale, that this is what's going to happen to everyone. It's real. That we will have to give an account, the people we love will have to give an account, people we don't know will have to give an account, the great, the small, everyone. Oh Lord, do not let us just listen and go. I pray that this would linger in our hearts, we need it. You've put eternity into the hearts of man, let us consider it tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to have some observations, some in-the-end observations. Here's what's going to happen in the end. We'll get those from the text and some right-now application. In light of what's going to happen in the end, here's what we've got to do right now. So let's jump into it. I'm going to keep us moving. Number one, first observation. Get right to it. In the end, Jesus will sit on a throne of judgment. We see this in verses 11 and 12. 
In the end, Jesus will sit on a throne of judgment. The final battle is over. Verses 11 through 15 give you the last glimpse of evil in the Bible. This is it. This is it. We live in a dark and grimy world. Well, all the dark and grime is going away right here. This is it. There's nothing left now but judgment. And that's why John sees a great white throne. This is a throne of judgment. The throne is called great because of who is seated on it. And because of the authority that the one who is seated on it possesses. This is Jesus Christ. And we know that this is the Son of God on the throne because Acts 17.31 tells us, He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. And of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. Well, we know who that is. It's Jesus. That's the one who's going to judge the nations. Matthew 25, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. The King of kings and the Lord of lords sits on the throne. The Son of Man who was judged in the place of sinners at Golgotha, now sits in judgment over sinners in glory. The throne is described as white because it is pure. Revelation is used white in this way throughout the book. Jesus offered pure white garments to the lukewarm Laodiceans in Revelation 3. The martyrs are given pure white robes in Revelation 6. Jesus is riding on a white horse showing his purity and his holiness in Revelation 19. And so the image is unmistakable here. That God will judge the world through his pure and holy son, Jesus Christ, who sits on a throne of authority, owning the right to judge every soul as the life-giving creator of all. His judgment will be a pure judgment, meaning it is completely fair and good. There will not be an ounce of wrong in the scales. It will be a judgment that comes out of his righteous character, and it will be according to his perfect law, which also came out of his righteous character. Often we think of Jesus with a lamb tossed over his shoulders. Often we think of Jesus smacking down a Pharisee and loving a tax collector. We think of Jesus turning over tables and chasing bad guys out of God's house and Jesus healing lepers and Jesus being countercultural in the way that he deals with women and Jesus saying, little children, come to me. And we ought to think of Jesus in all of those ways because he is all of that. But we also must think of Jesus in the way he is described in Revelation 20.11. This world does not want to think of Jesus that way. Leave him as a spiritual guru. Leave him as somebody who even loves the world and maybe demands a little obedience but they do not want to hear about Jesus on the great white throne. But we have to think of Jesus this way. This is who he is. He is a judge, and he is the judge. And in the end, he's going to sit on a throne of judgment. His Father promised this to him. And we know that God the Father keeps his promises. Psalm 2, verse 6, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And he promises that he will judge the nations and he will rule them. And in the end, he will do that which the Father has authorized him to do. Jesus said, For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. When Jesus does this judging work from his great white throne, it is going to signal the end of the age. 
That's why earth and sky flee from his presence here in these verses. In verse 11, from his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. The old earth, the old heaven are fleeing from the presence of the judge who is closing out the accounts of history. They have no place in his courtroom. Every deed committed on the old earth and every deed committed under the old heaven has been committed. There are no more deeds to be committed. All of life that is to be lived in the future will be lived out in glory or will be lived out in judgment. It will be lived out in heaven or it will be lived out in hell. And so here, the created order, as you and I know it, the heavens and the earth, flee away because it is time for the old to pass away, and behold, it is time for the new to come. And by the way, it is fitting that when we come together for the first time, God willing, for our midweek in January, we will start with, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. That's a good way to start 2024. We shouldn't be surprised to see creation in trauma here at the end, at judgment. John's vision has been hinting at this throughout. The sixth seal represented final judgment. And when the sixth seal was opened in Revelation 6, there was cosmic upheaval. You remember there was this great earthquake. The sun is turning black. The moon is turning to blood. In Revelation eleven thirteen, when the two witnesses who represent the Lord's church are resurrected and vindicated, after that, final judgment is coming, right? There's an earthquake. When the seventh bowl is poured out, it's the same thing. It's a great earthquake unlike anything humanity has ever seen in Revelation 16, 18. All this shows us how the old creation is going to be melted down. It's going to flee away. Its time is done. Behold, the Lord will make all things new with a new heaven and a new earth in Revelation 21. In verse 12, John says he sees the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books are opened. If you've ever read the book of Daniel, it might sound familiar to you because we have very similar language there in Daniel 7, verses 9 and 10. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. We know who that is. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, and its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. What are these books? Well, it's the records of history. It's everything. It's every act that any human being has ever performed under God's watchful eye, and he's seen all of it. Jesus the judge is opening up the books of history, and he is judging the record of every life. Great and small, nobody's exempt. Second observation tonight. In the end, Jesus will judge everyone by what they've done. In the end, Jesus will judge everyone by what they've done. Everyone called to account for everything. This is what we're talking about here in Revelation 20, verse 12. After the age of witness is over, Christ will return and everybody who's ever lived is going to be resurrected. Everyone. This is what the prophets taught, Daniel 12, verse 2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. This is what Jesus taught in John 5. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs, all who are in the tombs, will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil 
to the resurrection of judgment. What's going to take place in that judgment? Well, Matthew describes it to us in detail. He records Jesus' words in Matthew 25. Now, I know, because I just went to a SBCV homecoming over the last few days where I listened to like, you know, four sermons in two days or whatever. I know that when a preacher reads a very large chunk of scripture that is not his source text, I know the temptation out here is to gloss over and kind of check out, and you start thinking about maybe what you're going to do later, and then when the preacher gets back to, you know, expounding the word, you're like, oh yeah, I've got to lock back in here, right? That can happen. You kind of gloss over. Don't gloss over on Matthew 25. This is a parallel text to Revelation 20, 11 through 15. It's like we have Revelation 20, 11 through 15, and in Matthew 25, it's Jesus saying, let me tell you in detail what this will be like. So here is Jesus from his own mouth telling us in detail what that day of judgment is going to be like. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne, the great white throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you drink? And when do we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when do we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, and to the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer, saying, Lord, when do we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly, I say to you, as you did not do it, To one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. What a sobering thought this is. That everyone who has ever lived, great and small, the poor beggar and the president of the United States, will come before God and answer for every public and private moment. The complaint you uttered, you thought nobody heard. God heard, because every complaint is a complaint against him, and he will judge it. Every, every, every bit of internet that you've looked at, and then deleted the search history, and you thought, I got away with it, nobody found out, let me clean this up real fast. God saw it all, and he will judge it. The thought you had about the person in front of you, in line, at Target, He's going to judge that thought. All of it. Your actions, your thoughts, your intentions, all of it. And if you don't believe that, if you think, no, 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 come on. He's going to judge the actions. He's not going to start getting down into my thoughts and my intentions and motives. 
Jeremiah 17.10, the Lord says, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. See, people think they're going to get away with all sorts of things. They think they have gotten away with it. They think that they have skeletons in their closet, long buried. There's no accountability for their actions. But there will be. Believer and unbeliever alike are going to have the book of their lives opened up and we're going to be judged for everything we've done. How we spent our time, we will be judged for it. I sat in a class this week, a breakout session, where Jeff Mingi, who is our SBCV regional strategist, he's written a book called Digital Dominion, said there's no excuse for a Christian to pass time sitting there mindlessly scrolling on their phone. You are asking for Satan to just bring trash into your life. Lust, anger, frustration, laziness. He was like, there's just no reason for it. Christian ought to be proactive in redeeming time with technology, not passing time and losing it. He's going to judge that. He's going to judge how we spend our money. He's going to judge how we spend love and affection. He's going to judge how we spend words. He's going to judge how we spend our health. All of it. We will not only be judged for the ways we've transgressed his laws, but also for the ways that we have gotten his mercy and just taken it for granted. William Gurnall said, God not only keeps an account of thy sins, but of the mercy thou hast received, and thou must be answerable to both. How many mercies have we received? Not only to, to, to get them and, and to assume these are our rights. These are our privileges. And we never stop to thank God. Because we thought we were entitled. How many mercies have we received and attributed to others? And not to God. Or we attributed to our own flesh. Boy, I'm glad, I'm glad I know how to take care of myself. Our ungratefulness will also be judged. Now hearing this, you might despair and think, well, then we're all doomed. We're doomed. I thought this was a gospel preaching church. What in the world? We're sinners. He's a righteous judge. If he's judging everything, what am I going to do? Well, that's where we see this other book. Because not only will the books of God's records of humanity be opened, but so will the record of the elect. For in verse 12, John says that there is a separate book open, and it's called the book of life. It's mentioned again in verse 15, where John says that if anyone's name is not in the book of life, they are thrown into the lake of fire. They are thrust into the second death. And the inverse of that is true as well. If anyone's name is found in the book of life, they will not be thrown into the lake of fire, and they will not taste the second death. So our third observation, in the end, those whose names are in the book of life will not taste the second death. This is not the first time we've seen the book of life in Revelation, but this is the shorter title for it. Its full title is found in Revelation 13.8. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it, talking about the beast, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. The book of life of the Lamb who was slain. You know when you sing that song, The Roll Called Up Yonder? The role called up yonder is the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. It was written when? Before time. Before the foundation of the world. 
So according to Scripture, from the perspective of God, the determining factor for your eternity is whether or not your name is written down in the Lamb's book of life. And yet we're also told that we're all going to be judged according to what we have done. So what do we make of this? Well, in order for us to reconcile it, we've got to understand the judgment that we receive as believers is going to be different from the judgment that unbelievers experience at the great white throne. The unbeliever will be judged for their deeds, and they will be given eternal justice according to their deeds. It's going to be perfectly congruent. The punishment that they receive for eternity will perfectly meet the crime because God is perfect in everything he does, including his judgments, including the judgment of eternal punishment. Hebrews 9.27 says, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes what? Judgment. And so when that happens, and an unbeliever stands before the law of God, if it is broken at any point, it's broken at every point. It's like a window. And they will be declared guilty of sin. And we know from Paul that the wages of sin is death. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. But the wages of sin, according to Romans 6.23, is death. But this is not the case for the believer because their names are written not in the book of death, but in a book of life. The Lamb's book of life. And those whose names are in the book of life are given to the Son by the Father. John 6, 37, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Well, who's being given? It's those who are on the roll called up yonder. Jesus knows their names. He's known their names from before time. And he came to earth to save them and to die on the cross for them and to accomplish their salvation. And he rose from the grave and he secured their life. And he continues to intercede for them at the right hand of the Father. And when the Father looks at our lives, he no longer sees your works, but sees the work of Christ. In a legal sense, you're declared righteous. So unlike the unbeliever who is being declared guilty or not guilty on the basis of their works, the believer is declared guilty or not guilty on the basis not of their works, but of Christ's work. And since his work is perfect according to the law, we're accepted in him and declared fit for the new heaven and the new earth. We're resurrected to life. So the judgment then is not unto death. And yet we will stand before God in judgment. So what is this judgment? Well, Paul tells us about it in 1 Corinthians 3. It's sometimes called the Bema Seat Judgment. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. For the day, that's talking about the day of judgment, will disclose it. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has. So, if you're a Christian, praise God, You've been saved by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And Jesus is the foundation for your eternal life. And yet, you've got to build on that foundation, right? Because faith without works is dead. And so if you really are a believer, he is going to be compelling you to go out into the world and to serve him and to represent him. And the things that you go and you do in the world that are truly for Jesus, it's not about you, it's not about your flesh, You're just like, man, I'm here to serve the Lord. It's pure, it's real, and you're actually able to do that because God has freed you from your sin nature and you are now free in Christ to actually serve God. Like we talked about Sunday, to fulfill the law of love. 
right? You can do this. Go out there and, and live for Jesus. When you do that, those works, they will survive the purifying judgment of God. At the great white throne, they will speak. Those works will speak to your rightful place on the new earth and will speak to your name's rightful place in the book of life. It's not that your works earn your place in the book of life. Don't hear me saying that. We know salvation is by grace. It's not by works. What your works show is that Christ has indeed saved you. That your redeemed life has produced fruits worthy of repentance, as John the Baptist said. These are the righteous deeds of the saints that the church wears like a wedding dress at Jesus' return in Revelation 19.8. John said it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. But everything in your life that you've done since you have been a Christian that was not for Jesus, it was about your ego, it was about your flesh, it was about your agenda, it was about you being first, it was about you being in control, it was about you getting the glory, it was about you getting the spotlight, or you feeling good about yourself, or whatever. It's just going to burn up like wood and hay and straw. And it will be cast as far as the east is from the west. Some theologians say this is the last bit of pain that you will ever feel in your soul. When you see your unrighteous works that you committed after salvation, burn up before you. It's going to be the last bit of, oh, that you feel. Other theologians say, no, no, no. He's not even going to let you feel that. We don't know. We don't know. But either way, the fact that our entire lives will be laid bare before the bar of Jesus Christ, well, that ought to motivate us to build on his foundation with obedient acts of love that reflect the salvation we have received. To not waste our days. And along those lines, I would challenge us to not think of obeying and loving God merely in terms of Bible reading and song singing. Praise God for worship. Praise God for your Devo time. But so much of what you see in Matthew 25 and that sheep and goat judgment is attached to how you treat other people. How you live and and move in society. And Jesus takes your treatment of other image bearers so personally that he says your actions toward them are as if it was toward him. And in light of that, we have to understand that the way we treat other people says everything about whether or not our name is found on that roll called up yonder. Fourth observation. We get to see how God deals with the final enemy of Revelation. We've seen the beast fall, Babylon fall. Those who take the mark are defeated, and now we're seeing them uh, judged. We've seen Satan himself conquered. But there's one more enemy that we sometimes forget about. In 1 Corinthians 15, 26, Paul says the last enemy to be destroyed, it's not Satan, it is death. And in verses 13 and 14, it's time, praise God, for the death of death. And so number four, in the end, death itself will be defeated. If you eat of this tree, you will surely die. See, death has always been the dancing partner of disobedience toward God. Death has always been in business with sin. Always comes along with it. Life is the dancing partner of obedience. If he doesn't, if Adam doesn't eat of the tree, then he doesn't die. Well, on the new earth, there will be no disobedience to King Jesus. Therefore, the dancing partner of disobedience, death, will be nowhere to be found. 
Revelation 21, 4 says, death is no more as the eternal age is dawning. You see in verse 13, the sea gives up the dead who are in it. That's not, don't, don't think of like a tranquil ocean, you know, in some Caribbean setting. No, no, no. In the Jewish world, the ocean was scary. It was viewed as a place of chaotic destruction because they didn't know what was under that water, right? Like we've sent cameras down there and we've done studies and stuff. We still don't really know what's in the depths of the ocean, by the way. Like it's scary stuff if you go online and start looking it up. There's things down there that God made that I never want to see face to face. Let it stay down there, right? It was a place of chaos and destruction. It was scary. It's a place of death. You know, a lot of people, they got on a boat. They didn't come back back then. This is a symbolic way of talking. The place of chaos, the place of destruction, the place of death cannot hold the dead any longer. It must give them all up. So death gives up the dead in it. And what that means is all who are in the graves are raised. Hades gives up all who are in it as well. That's the holding place of unbelievers. We talked about the place of life and victory in Revelation 20, verses 4 through 6, the holding place for believers who die before Jesus' return. They experience the first resurrection, which the second death has no power over. Jesus calls this Abraham's side or Abraham's bosom in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. But Hades is a place of separation from God. A separation from goodness. It's the place where the souls of unbelievers go awaiting the great white throne judgment. And when Jesus sits on his great white throne, the sea and death and Hades will give up all their dead and they will be judged. And then we see in verse 14 that death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire, which is a symbolic way of describing the death of death. Sam Storm says, death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire just as the beast and false prophet are. This is John's way of describing the final defeat of God's enemies and his eternal victory over every force or person that has opposed him. God wins. Amen indeed. And then finally we have our fifth in the end observation and it's focused on the second death. For anyone who has their name written in the book of life, they will not be thrown into the lake of fire. That is not the case for those whose names are absent. Verse 14 explains that the second death is the lake of fire, and then in verse 15 it says that those whose names are not in the book of life will be thrown into the lake of fire. So number five, in the end, those whose names who are not in the book of life will experience the second death. This is a heavy truth, and it is to be understood in sobriety, with a clear mind. These are not things to be discussed at bars by drunkards. These are things to be discussed by men with clear eyes, with women with clear eyes, considering their eternity. The picture that we are given by the Holy Bible at the end of Revelation 20 is one where unbelievers are resurrected to judgment. And when God looks at their life, he doesn't see the perfection of his son because they have rejected his son and they have followed the beast. And so when he judges them, he doesn't judge them according to Christ's record. He judges them according to their own. And what they have done is they have rebelled against the Lord. And then they have suppressed the truth so they could keep rebelling and feel okay about it. Living as their own God, living as their own Lord. And in rejecting the only atoning sacrifice that God the Father has provided for the sins of humanity, they are left to pay the deathly wages forever. Lake of fire is called the second death. It's going to last forever. It was right there in Jesus' sheep goat judgment teaching. He says these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. 
Jesus himself describes hell as a place, a lake of fire is a place where the worm never dies. The worm is a creature known for making a meal off of dead things. And the worm will always have food in the lake of fire, in the place of death, because death never ends there. He describes it as a place where the fire is not quenched. And Revelation 21 tells us the type of people who are going to be there. Cowards who did not repent and put their trust in Jesus Christ. Faithless people who did not turn from their doubting and believe the word of Jesus Christ. Detestable people and murderers who press on in their evil. Try to wash it away with their own good works or again suppress the truth so they can continue on in unrighteousness. Sexually immoral people who get in bed with Babylon, go along with the sexual ethics of the world, reject Christ as the bridegroom. People who practice sorcery and seek power and provision from created things instead of the creator. People who lie and make themselves an enemy of God's truth. Revelation 21.8 says, Their portion will be in the lake of fire that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. I don't know if you noticed, but the profile of the punished in verse 8 describes all of us. Such were some of you, right? Such was I. None of us have avoided these horrible sins. In some form or fashion, we all make the list. So the only way you don't taste the second death is to share in the first resurrection. The only way not to taste the second death is to trust in Christ. It's to have your name in the book of life. So those are the the observations. I'm going to do the applications, and they're very quick. Number one, right now, everything we do matters. If all those things are true about the end, right now, everything matters. If God's going to open the books and the record of our life will be exposed down to the minute detail, and how I spend my time matters, how I spend my money matters, how I spend my energy matters, what I do with my talents, it matters. Our life is short. Solomon says there's a time to be born, there's a time to die. He doesn't even mention the in-between. That's how short it is. It's just a breath and it's over. A vapor, the Bible calls it. And yet, what you do with that vapor matters. John Flavel said, Is there an eternal state into which souls pass after this life? How precious then is the present time upon the improvement whereof that state depends. Oh, what a huge weight hath God hung upon a small wire. God hath set us here in a state of trial. According as we improve these few hours, so it will fare us to all eternity. Every day, every hour, nay, every moment of your present time hath an influence upon your eternity. If you don't know Jesus Christ, the remaining hours of your life must be spent repenting of your sin and then living for him. If you're a believer, the remaining hours of your life must be spent building on the foundation of Christ and not building for yourself building for the kingdom. We've got to give our lives to the cause of Jesus, not pursue what our own selfish flesh calls us to pursue. Your flesh constantly wants you to drop anchor on this earth and live as if the here and now is all there is. It's constantly going, drop anchor, live in the world, love the world, be in the world, be of the world, do it. But the Spirit of God says, no, get your mind on the things that are above. Look to Christ and drop your anchor on the new earth. Drop your anchor in heaven. Live with your eyes on the city that is yet to come. Spend your time aiming to please the Lord Jesus Christ. Reject your flesh. Reject yourself. Listen to the Spirit and honor Christ with your moments and your days.
Because everything we do will have its reverberation on that day. Number two, right now, everyone must repent. I took a lot of cross-references out up there. Is that Ken up there? I see you. So Ken, you can just speed through those if I don't mention them. When the books are open, sinners will be exposed. There's not going to be any arguing. There's not going to be any second chances. There's not going to be any bartering with God. That's the way it is in human courts. Every court reaches a time in which it must fully enforce the law for the sake of justice. At this moment, God mercifully withholds his gavel from the final judgment. But when the day comes, he will deal with every ounce of evil once and for all. So if you do not know Christ, you must hear the word of the Lord. You must respond by agreeing with God about your sin. Call it evil. Believe God's word about sin. And also believe his word about the answer to sin. It's Jesus. It's the one who's on the throne. He was born to die for the sin. He laid down his life to pay for the sin. He resurrected to defeat the sin. And to defeat its business partner, death. He is the way, the truth, and the life. You can never, ever know God, and you can never be forgiven of your sin unless you know Him. Turn from your sin. Turn to Jesus Christ in faith tonight. And if you're a believer and you are living in gross, habitual sin before God, if you have been living like an unbeliever and you've been suppressing the truth so that you can try to ignore the Holy Spirit, well, then you need to remember your first love tonight and repent. The day of judgment draws near. The books will be open. There's no time for sleeping. More on that Sunday. Lastly, number three. And this is maybe the most important thing I'll say to you tonight. Right now, every church, if these things are true, must stay on mission. Folks, if all of history is barreling towards this conclusion and every soul is going to stand before the throne of judgment answering for their lives, then the mission of the church becomes of utmost importance. Our mission, we said it last night to every upward coach that was here, is to make disciples. It's the point of the Upward League. It's the point of the Christmas light show is to try to get people to come so we can meet them and and invite them to our church and then hopefully they will believe in Jesus and then we can baptize them in the name of the triune God and then we can disciple them. And then they will disciple someone else. And until the trumpet sounds and Satan and death are defeated and every soul is gathered for judgment, the church has to answer the ringing of the mission bell. And as we arrive here tonight, November 15th, 2023, one week removed from our quarterly members meeting, it's an exciting time. I sat with pastors this week who looked at me and said, we are poor. We got no money. We can't help anybody do anything. We can barely pay our staff. It's exciting because for the first time in two decades, we're out of debt got money spread across some accounts and we're working with a network of local faithful churches to do some awesome things we're serving christ we got the christmas lights outreach got upward basketball starting one of our biggest outreach seasons of the year christmas eve service all that we're making plans for the future praying about how we're going to spend money what we're going to be teaching from the pulpit where we're going to go in the nations but as we do all these things We have to remember that we exist to see souls move from death to life through God's global disciple-making movement for His own glory. 
Our mission as the workmanship of Jesus Christ is to fulfill the task set before the church, which is to take the gospel to the world and see souls saved and cultivated. It's all about this mission. And I'm going to tell you, church, we'll always be in danger from drifting from this. Every church is in danger of drifting from it. It's just that they've all got different temptations. Let me tell you what ours is. We've got a big building. And in order to be good stewards, we've got to care for this thing over the long haul. And it's a machine, right? Like, she purrs, and sometimes she roars. Sometimes she cries, right? This building is big. It's a lot of toilets, a lot of walls, a lot of paints, a lot of things that can break. Seaford's a church with a lot of active ministries. In order to be faithful witnesses, we'll use those ministries as platforms to, pro- to proclaim the gospel from. But here's going to be the temptation, is to think that taking care of the building and having successful programs are the end in and of themselves. This is the goal. Maintain the institution. Just keep enough people coming so we can keep the building nice. Let's just maintain this institution. But in light of the day of judgment that is coming, we have to understand we don't exist to maintain an institution until Christ comes to judge the world. We exist to make disciples. We're here to plunder the house of Satan. Are we not? Hello, is this what we're doing? Strong man's bound. We're plundering his house. He's using us. Jesus is using us as his mouthpiece on the earth during the age of witness. We're not just here to keep the building and the programs of Seaford Baptists up and running. No, we're here to build the kingdom until the king comes back. And we are preparing this neighborhood church. A lot of people in this neighborhood out there living right now are thinking about God. They're not thinking about eternity. They're living in the here and now. And we are here to prepare this neighborhood for the day. To tell them that God has appointed a man to judge the world in righteousness. You must believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the only way to be saved. And then to tell them that there is joy and life in being his follower and disciple. That he has made them to experience that joy and life. And then to go and teach others how to experience it. So in light of the great white throne judgment that is coming, we can't lose our focus. And we can't make buildings and programs and ministries and the things that we love the end goal. They're just the vehicle that we're using to get to the end goal. And programs and ministries may have to change sometimes to get to the end goal. And this building we've seen will have to change at times to get to the end goal. We just got to keep being faithful and keep our eyes on the celestial kingdom and keep our eyes on the mission until that day comes. Father God, I thank you so much for this church because Satan has tried so many times to get her focus off of the things that are above. Since 1964, he's been here trying to harass 1311 Seaford Road and the saints who gather at it. In light of that, Lord, we turn to you and we ask for your grace And we give you thanks that your church stands. She stands. She plunders the house of the strong man. But in light of the day that is coming, Lord, let us be vigilant to keep standing, to keep on mission, to not lose focus, 
to share the gospel with everyone, knowing that everyone will stand before the throne, to use our time wisely, knowing our time will be judged before the throne, to build on the righteousness of Christ, to build on the foundation of Jesus with gold and silver and precious stones that will be purified by the fire of judgment and will be the crowns that we are given as our rewards forever as we are co-heirs reigning with you. For if we suffer with you, we reign with you. Lord, we thank you for the gospel and we thank you for the chance to represent you. Bless us as we go tonight. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.